That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Morning, Ben. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right, Tom. How, uh, how are you? How was your weekend? I had a great weekend. Um, I ended up uh, joining the March Against Anti-Semitism that went, that went through uh, the centre of London yesterday, and it was absolutely fantastic in terms of the vibe, the atmosphere. It was very, very relaxed, very, very friendly. A bit squashed at times because I think, based on the latest numbers, I think there were a hundred thousand, or maybe, maybe even over. I was, I was actually marching alongside one of our staff members, um, uh, Tim, and he obviously knows how to how these numbers are done and, and what numbers to rely on, what numbers not to rely on. He said, "You need to." listen to what the police say you need to li- wait for what the police estimate of the number of people on the march is and that's your best guess so um but uh, yeah it's, it's ranged from 60,000 to 100,000 or so but it was a, a great a great day out actually i should uh, i should give a plug actually we did an episode with tim months and months and months ago didn't we earlier this year on uh, all of these questions of of public order but in the context of the coronation and the arrests of the Republic protesters who were who were held for most of the day, weren't they? Or a bit longer, in fact, perhaps some of them. Um, I'd go back and listen to that. He's um, he's had a mm. long career in the police before coming to work for the Free Speech Union, and uh, is our go-to expert on public order questions. Um, so yeah, go go back and find that one. I might listen to that one again. Actually, that was a really interesting conversation. Well, the the, um, the yeah. numbers reminded me of. Um, <clears throat> I was saying to someone earlier that it's a bit like the the historiography of the Wars of the Roses, which I remember from from a level where you're, you you have all of the chroniclers saying, "Oh yeah, there were definitely a hundred thousand people at this battle," and then modern historians saying, well, "No, there were about twenty thousand or something." Um, and uh, somewhere between the two extremes, yeah. you find the, the the real number. But it was fantastic to see um, to see how, uh, how how big the march was. Actually, because the other ones have been relatively small, hasn't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the other ones had really been rallies uh, regarding yep. releasing the hostages, very focused on that very particular issue. There was one in Trafalgar Square, and there have been a couple of other meetings. But this was really after what we've seen on the streets of London. Folk zooming in really on what we're seeing here in Britain, uh, the anti-Semitism which has gone up a thousand percent, which is tenfold. I, I always prefer to use the uh, the number of times it's gone up. I find that's more intuitive, but it's gone up tenfold since the 7th of October on the streets of Britain. And really to see all sorts of people there, there were Iranian flags, there were um, Indian flags, there were Palestinians on the march, there were Jewish people on the march, obviously. And um, a lot of people said, you know, to me, came up, said, oh, are you Jewish? And I said, no, I'm not. And um, they said, thank you for your support. And I thought, well, it's not really yet, yet great, but actually I, I rather feel it's a privilege and in many ways a duty when we're seeing this level of anti-Semitism on the streets to be on the march and to be, to be sort of getting out there when you can. Not everyone can, obviously, but when you can, get out there and show um, that, that you really are going to stand up against this 
dreadful thing of anti-Semitism, which doesn't stop at Jews. I think that's been the thing I've learned the most yeah. over the last few weeks. It doesn't stop with Jews. It goes on and on. Absolutely. I saw Peter Tatchell posted that he was there holding up a similar sort of banner that he tried to use on one of the uh, Saturday protests a couple of weeks ago or something like that, saying, I stand with Jewish people and with Palestinians against all hate and violence. Um, and it's noteworthy that the organisers of the march yesterday on Sunday had no objection whatsoever to him doing mm. that, whereas the organisers mm. of the uh, march on the other side wouldn't allow him to proceed with them, yeah. uh, which tells you something. Well, the BBC, again, was a bit of a distraction, I think, Ben. Uh, the uh, two things that they did, I mean, obviously they had that um, not allowing senior members of staff, so applying the, the normal rules, actually, for processions um, and political meetings, they applied to this march rather than treating it as they might have uh, treated the Pride March and others and saying, well, anyone can go on it. Um, they said, no, senior staff and factual reporters and news reporters shouldn't go on it. And that really was, um, once again, a bit of a bit of a um, shooting themselves in the foot because, honestly, as I say, it wasn't just Jewish people. It was Palestinians. It was, it was Iranians. It was Indians. It was all sorts of people on that march from every nation and to say oh no it falls into the category where we can't have the factual news reporters on the march was was disappointing and and the second thing that struck me on that ben was i looked at the numbers that were being reported by the bbc and it said on the headline it said thousands thousands march in london and then the first line it says tens of thousands and then in the third line it said a hundred thousand have been reported marching and the day before the headline for the pro-Palestinian march have been tens of thousands have gone march. And you think, well, again, it's subtle. And I, it was because I was looking for it. I was looking for it. So maybe I'm seeing what I'm looking for. We have to allow for that. But I still think these little things where the numbers are being reported, you know, underestimated for the march in, in the headline, um, or at least not not the full picture in the headline versus what they're saying for the march before. These little things, they, they, they're drip, 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 aren't they? The BBC is just in this hopeless muddle, and we spoke about this in the uh, with the story of Gary Lineker and so on. That I, I get completely if it's the BBC's position that no staff can go on any protests or demonstrations or marches of any kind. Full stop. I think that would be a reasonable view for the BBC to take, given its unique position or supposed position. Consistent. In it would be consistent. That would be completely fine. I, I also uh, that wouldn't raise my hackles on free speech grounds if they said to all protesters, no, uh, sorry, all presenters, you cannot express your personal, political, or philosophical opinions while you're employed by the BBC. Again, I think that would be reasonable. But what seems to me intolerable uh, is the position we have now, where some staff can go on some things, some staff can say other things, some presenters have special conditions, others don't. And it's a completely uh, philosophically inconsistent muddle, which mm. people rightly see as being completely hypocritical. Um, and it seems to be bent towards fashionable courses and bent away from courses that are deemed to be unfashionable. Um, and I think that's just a hopeless, hopeless mess. And we, we see a similar thing as well in, in conventional workplaces where you know, again, if a boss said, look, I don't want you talking about politics on the shop floor. Yeah? Okay, fair yeah. enough. 
but you can't again have a situation where the boss says oh no actually you can talk about these political views if you hold these political views that's fine um but this set of people aren't allowed to say what they think about this issue uh, again the, the unfairness in that is palpable we've reached a point where there is a real lack of clarity over what political means in different contexts and the workplace is a great example what is political in in the workplace what is politicization in the workplace and we'll come up against this um again and again we come up against this in our work and uh, in the casework, and we'll talk about it later in the context of um, King's College London. But this this lack of being able to say either that it's political and we're being political and we're going to admit to being political, or this lack of ability to be consistent, um, as you say, to sort of get behind the more trendy, uh, often often supported by the younger, newer members of the office. Uh, yeah. And not put not put support against uh, what would be often the mainstream or the quiet majority in the country, and um, yeah, it's it's just an inability to see it, which is it's so frustrating, isn't it? When you when we when we see it from the outside, we knew we were speaking last week about this question of whether you can have these neutral, uh, politically secular, public places uh, and institutions say so the civil service the bbc and so on um and there's this there's this ongoing debate on the right and on the free free speech uh, in the free speech coalition uh, and among activists as to whether those institutions need to be recaptured and made institutionally neutral once again or whether that's hopeless and you just need to start building up new institutions and um tom i've said this to you before but but for listeners, I'll, <clears throat> I'll repeat myself if you don't mind. Is that I've been listening to this this really good podcast series by The Rest is History on the Aztecs, and I know nothing really beyond the sort of primary school version of, of, of Aztec history. Um, and there was this section about flower wars, these sort of ceremonial forms of warfare that the various uh, states, the Aztecs and their, and their competitors, would fight with each other in these ritualized forms of combat uh, where everybody basically was playing by the same set of rules. And then you have Cortez and the Spanish arriving. I don't think it's it's woke of me to say that they behaved quite despicably uh, and were not beha- were not playing by this set of of rules at all. They were not fighting a flower war. They were fighting a a, a European style campaign of total war. Uh, they just wanted to win. And I just thought that reminded me of our conversation last week, as I said to you on the phone the other day, that um, we have this this old fashioned liberal. In small L liberal sense of neutral public square and institutions and so on. And if everyone agrees to play by those rules, if everyone agrees by those ritualized forms of, of politics and wants to play by those rules, it works very, very well. But as soon as you have a large faction of people who don't want to play by those rules, who just want like what Cortez wanted, they just want total victory and they don't care what damage they do to achieve it, those forms stop working. And I think that's the position we've got where, where the woke movement, it, it, it's not playing by the rules of, of old-fashioned small-L liberals. It, it just wants to win. It wants to capture everything. Um, and that, that's, that's, the, that's the problem we have, this huge challenge of how to respond to that. And, and, and as I said, whether you, you build new institutions uh, and, and GB News and Talk TV and rivals to the BBC and new universities uh, like Buckingham and so on, um, or whether you, you have this sort of institutional guerrilla uh, warfare within the, the institutions we already have. 
Do you know Asterix and Obelix? Uh, ben? A, a little, yeah, a little. When you mentioned the the Incas there, or the sorry, the Aztecs, yeah, uh, you reminded me of uh, Asterix or Obelix in Britain when uh, the Romans are attacking Britain and they can't beat the British uh, tribes, uh, however hard they try. And then some bright spark in the Roman campaign realizes that every day at four o'clock, the, the British stop to have a cup of tea. <laughs> and um, they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to attack during the, the tea break. Yeah. And as a result of this, you get all of these wonderful drawings in the Asterix and Obelix uh, book where uh, they go, the, the Brits are going, oh, well, that's a bit off, you know, attacking during tea time. But it works because yep. the Romans have broken all British convention by attacking them during tea time. Now, for anyone who's not in Britain, I want to make it clear that Britain doesn't stop at 4 p.m. every day for a, a cup of tea and a slice of cake. A good, a good part of it might, but not, not generally in the workplace and certainly not, I don't think, in the army. Uh, however, it's exactly the sort of same idea that uh, the games, the, 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 the rules of the game are going to be applied differently by the ruthless Romans in this case. But um, I, I actually went back and did a, something slightly different after last week's conversation, uh, Ben. I went back to uh, what David Starkey had said about constitutional change since the new Labour government came in. And yeah. he was saying, a lot of people are talking about we need new ideas. We need new ways of looking at it. He says, no, no, we don't. That's wrong. We had the right ideas of freedom well-established in Britain, and they came out of the Middle Ages in particular. He's very clear on that in his view. It wasn't, it wasn't after the Middle Ages. It was from that time uh, that ideas of freedom and all of those um, things that we, 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 we took for granted um, have been rolled back since the quangocracy in particular, since devolution, since the destruction of so many things that have taken a long time to get into the right kind of balance. And his point is, we need the old ideas. We don't need new ideas. Um, I don't know, we, you were probably, I think you might have spoken just before he made that speech, actually, Ben. Yeah, at the Freedom Association, I did. Um, yeah. I. You know what? I, I agree with with that but perhaps not in the way in which um you you might expect me to in that th there is throughout history you you have people in in all sorts of different societies who don't like the way things are going so i would put myself in that category with respect to modern britain i'm sure many of our listeners would agree and one of the solutions to this problem um is as starkey says is to to reach back um to a golden age, or I mean, at this point, even a silver age would be pretty good going. Um, and to to try and um, to try and fumble your way back or inspire your way back to those values. The trouble with that, with a sort of historian's hat on, is that once you start to examine that sort of golden age thinking, I, do, I don't want to reduce what Starkey's saying to that level. I, I don't think it's that simplistic. But the problem with that kind of thinking, when people do say that sort of thing, is that these golden ages tend to evaporate um, a little bit under under close examination. But as a as a campaigner rather than a historian, what's so powerful is the idea of a better past. And whether it's true or not, whether it's partly mythical, uh, whether there's a you know grain of truth to it. Um, you know, the idea that there was Anglo-Saxon liberty before the Norman conquest 
that's an immensely powerful idea that produces all sorts of very socially desirable results in the long run. Now, you know, the historian, the cynic would then say, well, actually looking at Anglo-Saxon Britain, huge numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of people were kept in a condition that, that's basically slavery um, and the Normans put a stop to it. And, uh, you know, life might have been all right if you were a powerful nobleman and blah, blah, blah. We know all these arguments. Um, but nonetheless, the idea that there was a better past can inspire a better future. So in a slightly um, elliptical way, I am agreeing with Starkey there. Mm. I, I, um, I think he was very controversial in all sorts of ways, he, in particular his view of uh, uh, sort of the feminization of society. But one thing yeah. he said which struck me was that Brexit's, been, Brexit's utterly failed because, uh, you know, Brexit was meant to bring back control from Europe, bring back sovereignty from Europe, but it's absolutely it's achieved absolutely nothing. And I would disagree with him on one part of that. I would say what 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 Brexit's done is it's revealed that the British state uh, was not in a place anymore where it was capable of protecting those freedoms. Uh, and that in some ways, it's that idea of the tide went out. Once, once, once we tried to bring back control to Westminster, we suddenly realised we couldn't, or we realised that so much had changed in the civil service that those freedoms, and in particular, the stuff that we care about, freedom of expression, um, is are not what they used to be. Not without wanting to be sort of sound a bit like nostalgia, which is never what it used to be. Um, and I feel that 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 was actually a good win from Brexit is that it kind of the scales fell from our eyes and we realized, Oh, we really do have a problem. But I do love that view of history of, of the way it resonates into the cultural collective cultural mind of a people today by having the past and uh, it in and of itself, even though it's just a glimmer and probably a, an overemphasized glimmer, it has an impact and a, an important cultural impact and again, that's why it's so dispiriting, isn't it? To see everything culturally, whether it's a little a play that's got a trigger warning, whether it's a museum description of an item that inevitably pulls and draws on uh, the latest transgender ideology, or whether it's a, a, some other sort of performative art, you think, goodness me, why can't we just have something culturally that makes us feel... Um, we've had a fun night out. We've been reminded of some really positive stories about who we are uh, without being preached at, but we are being preached at and preached. And that's not very um, comforting. It's, it's quite the opposite, actually. Tom, you've fallen into my trap. You've allowed me to, uh, <laughs> to quote something to you that I read just this morning. Um, I'm reading this really interesting book called uh, 428 AD, and it's basically a tour of Europe and the, and the Eastern Mediterranean in the year 428. And there's a line that quotes an Egyptian abbot, and he is lamenting that he has any knowledge of the pagan past um, and fears that this knowledge of the past is contaminating his, uh, his, his spiritual progress. And he says, I remember the pagan poems and relive heroic battles. If these visions continue to deceive me, my soul will not be able to aspire to contemplate heavenly things. Therefore, I cry every day so that these images might disappear. Now, if that is not a statement of a woke activist, I do not know what is. <laughs> in Egypt. Yeah, and Egyptian, Egypt lasted for 4,000 years, didn't it, as, a, as an ancient well, civilization? Weird, yeah, the weird thing is that their, their, um, their pagan beliefs go on for an absolutely 
an incredible time. But then it it becomes um, well, all, all Christian um, desert inhabitants seem to go down this uh, this path of, of asceticism and really extreme um, sort of uh, spiritual uh, sacrifices of various kinds and people living on top of uh, pillars and all that sort of thing. Um, but I just thought. Mm. Here, here again, you you have. So I'm I'm casting the the new Christian faith as 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 the wake movement as the intolerant new religion, um, but that intolerance of the past and the the sense of the past as contaminating the moral progress of yourself and your society. I mean, don't we see that in these debates about Winston Churchill um, mm. or uh, Victorians or whatever? Um, it, it's that same sense, isn't it? Of moral contamination and, and wanting to cut the past ad, uh, adrift. And there's nothing being offered up that is as compelling. You know, there's nothing yeah. that's being told to us or offered up that will be as compelling as the image of uh, Admiral Lord Nelson on the ship at the Battle of Trafalgar. Well, the, the difference, yeah, the, the difference between the, the Christian, um, the early Christians and the work movement is that is that Christianity obviously does offer um a, a moral view whatever i mean there'll be many atheists listening to this and and i'm a uh, agnostic myself but it, it does offer a fresh moral universe and a, a moral system whereas uh, i would contend as you just have you just have the woke movement does not offer that so there are interesting parallels and, and you can as with any um, historical analogy you can overextend it uh, into the point of nonsense but i just read that this morning and i thought bloody hell <laughs> you know that that is a statement that could have been written in 2023. I love the fact that what you do for your uh, leisurely Monday mornings is read uh, an ancient Egyptian Daily Mail. <laughs> most of us, most of us are picking up our iPads and such. Like you're, you're picking up your papyrus, you're unscrolling it, and you're reading what's happened in man. you know the Cairo Times. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? A very strange man. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, we had a really important event last week, though, didn't we, within the Free Speech Union, which is probably it worth is. talking a little bit about. It, it obviously relates somewhat to what we've been discussing. But what you, you were at the, the discussion we had on <clears throat> getting the balance right, free speech and the right to protest in the current moment. What, yeah. what, what, how did you find that um, discussion and, and what struck you, Ben? So it's a, it was a panel of very eminent lawyers, and whenever eminent lawyers really get themselves going, I end up feeling like a, a dog watching the tennis. Um, but the the one the one point that that really really stuck with me was in the audience Q and A afterwards, and it, as well it was a great panel. It was a great audience. Uh, it was uh, Alan Sokol of the Sokol Hoax asked this uh, very ideologically pure question about um you know isn't the answer to bad speech more speech so that is straight from the liturgy of small l liberals and freedom of speech advocates it's it's the kind of thing that you know i might say on the tv or whatever um and natasha hasdorf who was speaking and, and she's made a, a public profile for herself in the last couple of months commentating on uh, this issue she's a barrister um and she said well the trouble with that formula, and I'm paraphrasing, I think the clip of this actually is on social media, so, so go and see it in her, her own words. Um, but, but the trouble with that is that that formula really just breaks down if, for instance, she gave the example of a, a Muslim-majority school where she'd done some work a, a decade or so ago, uh, where teachers aren't equipped to combat 
the bad speech, the Islamist extremist speech with good speech, or where they're too afraid to, uh, or where the level of indoctrination is such that people growing up in an area that is majority Muslim in Britain that's isolated from the wider culture, you know, they'll, they'll just never hear the quote unquote good speech. Um, it, it just, there, there isn't the space for that debate to take place. So again, we come back to this, this point about where you've got a system where everyone's playing within the same rules, then that kind of argument that Alan Stokel made is perfectly coherent. When it's a battle between Republicans and Democrats or the Labour Party and the Conservatives, and there's an arena where left and right are fighting it out and good speech and bad speech are in conflict. And you know you can debate, of course, whether people's minds are really actually changed by that or not, um, but it can take place. Uh, but, but that formula that I really want to believe in does just mm. break down in 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 those circumstances. So that was the one point that really stuck with me and has troubled me uh, in the week since, I think. What about you, Tom? What do you make of it? Um, again, I think Natasha Hausdorff is a bit of a hero. She's a barrister and she's legal director at UK Lawyers for Israel Charitable Trust. And she's been on TV, BBC, quite a lot over the last few, few weeks. And she yep. was, for me, like you, I think, a little bit of a hero. Um, and so what, what struck me, I felt that there was a lot of debate about whether or not the law needed to be advanced in light of what we've been seeing on Saturdays and the words that are being chanted like jihad, intifada, from the river to the sea, also the reference to the Khyber battle in the seventh century. Yeah. And what struck me was the panel seemed to be in agreement that whether we're talking about terrorism law or whether we're talking about public order law, it's strong enough as it is. In other words, there's a real sort of indirect um, rebuff to the Metropolitan Police Commission who says we don't, we can't stop certain things from being said or we can't intervene. And obviously there's an immediate in the moment discussion about what's operationally possible. However, the law is strong enough as it is. And I think that was a good outcome uh in, of that discussion especially you know as a free speech um campaigner we don't we, need, we, we certainly don't need more law to stop speech we need to get rid of this two-tier approach to policing which we've discussed yeah. multiple times before then and again natasha um is very very good at um at, at, at making that point as well and and saying look frankly this has really had an effect the the fact that the the police were were not treating uh, the in the early in the early pro-Palestinian demonstrations. We're not going in and recognizing some of this terrorist glorification in the way that perhaps they should have been. Has then had this knock-on effect. It's had this dreadful poisoning effect of letting others come out and say, you know what, we feel now we we're emboldened to go out and chant these things, many of which are frankly incitement to to violence and uh, which has already got enough law that, that the police can take and apply. <clears throat> so that that I think really, really struck me. And the, the 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 last thing I'd say on that, again, I think that Natasha Hausdorff really made this point well, which is the context really matters. You know, when people hear Kaiba Kaiba, most of the people on that march won't know about a seventh century battle in mm. which um, on the one hand, you have a Muslim army, and on the other hand, you have a Jewish army, and one the Muslim army massacres the Jewish army. And they, they won't get the reference that that is what, what that's saying, which is we need to wipe 
all Jews off, 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 yeah. um, or certainly out of Israel. And so context really matters. And there are going to be these naive kids on the marches who just pick up a pick up a chant. They don't mean anything by it. They're just being a bit idiotic. On the other hand, you are going to have people who know exactly what it means, and they know exactly how that makes the Jewish com- uh, community feel on the streets of London. And context, therefore, matters. And I was really struck then by a reference that uh, Natasha made to the uh, Rwanda uh, tribunal. Uh, and oh, yes. the fact that yeah. in that, yeah, do you remember this, Ben? I do, yeah. 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 And in that tribunal, there were incitement to genocide um, was sufficient just by um, the individual concerned called Akayesu, just by saying that the Tutsis were the sole enemy. That was enough in the context of what he was saying, which was now go out, no, go out and get rid of the sole enemy. That was incitement to genocide. And so some of these past instances of what is incitement to genocide, what is incitement to terrorism, are very useful. And I thought that she brought up some really important counterbalances um, to, to some of those more, some of the drier legal, but very, very important legal points. My gut feeling with all of that, and again, this is not this is not the opinion of a lawyer. This is this is my gut intuition about how the British state actually operates. Is that as soon as there is a new definition of extremism, as soon as there is some new law aimed at Hizbut Tahrir or whatever, uh, it's going to be disproportionately applied to people like conservative Christians who don't agree with gay marriage or. Uh, teachers who express that view who've been investigated by prevent we've seen this already happen um and that any any expansion in that direction as with all the powers the police already have is going to be disproportionately targeted at people who legislators are not trying to capture with it Mm. because that's just what we've seen with the two-tier policing with the way prevent actually functions and the way uh conservative christians are referred to prevent It, it it just will not work as conservative MPs would wish it to. That's that's just the, the blunt reality that, that that is how the British state functions, that when you look downstream from Parliament at the people who would actually be implementing and enforcing any new law on extremism, whatever that law might be, you've just got to know that it will be targeted at people who are not the concern at this moment. It's obvious, yep. completely obvious to yep. me that that's what would happen. Well, again, Natasha Hausdorff has uh, written a very powerful piece in The Telegraph today about her own personal experience just after the rocketing of the uh, of the hospital uh, in Gaza and that whole fog of yep. war moment. And there is a fog of war moment. Is it from Israel? Is it from Hamas? Uh, and, of course, the BBC, as we've talked about before, immediately said, oh, Hamas has reported that it was from Israel and that mm. was that was the emphasis and she was she was she was meant to be going on that day to talk about um what had happened and 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 provide alternative perspectives and was bumped she was bumped yeah. and she tried to say look this is a really important moment for someone like me to be on on air providing yeah. providing another perspective in the midst of the fog of war and uh, she was told, no, no, we, you know, we, we have, we're already getting the reports we need from, from, you know, on, on the ground, which yeah. as we know, following that, I think the BBC had to come out and say, yeah, we shouldn't have been quite as definitive as we were. Um, we, we said, I think it was 
um, it's hard to see how it couldn't have been anything other than the IDF. And and that was just absolutely um, awful thing to say in the knock-on impact that it then had for yeah. um, protests uh, on the street yeah. and making people feel threatened. So she's a, she's a bit of a hero. The, the, this fog of war, I mean, in, in that case, the fog of war lasted for about an hour before it was, it was clear that actually um, there was another strong possibility, uh, which mm. only became stronger since. Now, Tom, we want to talk about, uh, well, we don't want to talk about diversity, equality, <laughs> and inclusion, really. Uh, <laughs> but we ought to talk about it because there, there's more of it. There's more of it. Uh, and this is at King's College London, isn't it? Where there's been another... It is. Yeah, it is. So it's this it's this uh, next level, isn't it, of EDI, where it's not just being um, rolled out in institutions, as we know, and, and, and as we know from our casework, but equity, diversity, inclusion is now being added to the requirements and the expectations of uh, applications for promotion. And, and King's College London have now um, said that staff must now submit an application form. It runs to eight pages. But one of those pages is, is, is entitled Inclusion and Support. Um, and it's, it, it, it's where the applicant has to lay out how they have supported equity, how they supported diversity, and how they've supported inclusion. And what's worrying is that it lists, the guidance lists working groups, working with groups such as Stonewall as an example of good practice. Now, we know, we know that it's not... Um, uh, it's not by any means as simple as that. And Stonewall's actually um, really rolled out this more extreme transgender ideology and has been um, rebuffed out of most uh, government departments now. Yet still, this guidance is being rolled out and pointing people towards that and expecting people to look at that. So um, that was in our weekly newsletter this week. Um, and I think one uh, lecturer at King's College uh you claim the manager effectively asked him to campaign on Stonewall's uh, behalf. That was Dr. John Armstrong. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just another version, Ben, isn't it? Of this, maybe it's the next stage that everything you do, every next stage of your career, it's conditional upon probably before your academic credentials and your, you know, even yep. before that it's, it's being looked at and it's it's being used as a criterion, a core criterion of whether you, you can go to the next stage. There's no element of it being a, a test act like prescription yeah. on people. The, you know, the idea that if you're, if you're a Catholic, there are certain professions you can't enter. Um, but I, well, God, can I, can I go back to the fifth century once more? Just it, it's a bit, it's a bit like after, after Europe is Christianized, um, there is still some sort of residual tolerance for some pagans in the Senate, for some pagan military commanders who are quite effective. Um, but in the meantime, the temples are being smashed up, and it's 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 pretty grim. And unless you're a Christian um, convert or from a Christian family, um, and that there's an element of of this to it as well, where you know it might be that on a on a faculty or in a department, there's one sort of conservative dinosaur who's sort of tolerated and a bit of a joke. Um, and is allowed to sort of continue uh, with the proviso that everyone knows they'll be retiring in five or ten years, and so you know the the, the mission will continue after they have gone. Um, that that's what it feels like, and this is just mm. another way of making sure that the new replacement generations coming through um, get what the creed is. And you know the idea that in applying for a job you've got or for a promotion you've you've got to you've got to put in a statement of faith, basically. 
uh, is so abhorrent to the university tradition. Um, and again, we're back to this question of institutional capture, aren't we? We really are. There was a, an interesting um, side comment that was made in the weekly newsletter that made reference back to Professor Alan Sopel, who you, you've already mentioned, Ben, uh, yes. so far. He was he was the one who asked that question at, uh, at our event uh, last week on protest. Uh, but he, he mentioned in a, another session called Is There a Left Way Back from Woke? He said... Um, and it's very closely related to what you're saying about the new coming, new incoming class of um, the. He calls it the PMC, the professional managerial class. And his point is that they um, use woke ideology to p- portray themselves as virtuous defenders of the oppressed, but what they're really doing is serving their class interests. And he 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 set out three ways in which the PMC, the professional managerial class. Are serving there. First of all, the upper stratum is authorized to regulate the speech behavior and even the thoughts of the working classes and the people, the people who are lower down there from them in downstream in the hierarchy. Second, uh, so third of all, so I'm going to jump to the third one next, the lower strata of the um, professional managerial class they um, get sort of a psychological compensation to feel morally superior as well as educationally superior by virtue of the woke ideology. So there's this upper strata, it keeps them in place. The lower stratum, they're made to feel um, morally superior. And then the sort of the middle idea he had is that the woke ideology is like a trump card or a political litmus test for intra-class competition for jobs and influence. So there's the top, the bottom, and then there's the sort of moving between layers of the classes. And this is it. This is the political litmus test. This is the Trump card. It's looked at, and he made this point, that the, your EDI credentials are looked at before your research and before your teaching. Yeah. And when you were saying what happened um, when Christianity came to take over from the paganism, I thought it it really feels one way, doesn't it? Once you've said this is now the way, the the, the sort of the shibboleth, the way that gets you through the gate. Yes. Uh, before you know it, those positions are going to be filled out with people who are utterly um, uh, they're, they're they're radical adherents, fanatical adherents to the new way of thinking, the EDI way of thinking. So there's no going back. And what happens in that kind of culture is that you get some people, some extreme outliers who are very powerful and very wealthy, and they're able to survive this tide um, because of their extensive resources and and social capital and so on. And, you know, that like, that's a description of J.K. Rowling, isn't it? It's it's yeah. somebody who is has been phenomenally successful and, and obviously could not deserve that success more. Um, and although she contends with a huge amount of, of vitriol uh, every single day, she is able to survive this tide because she's not depending on somebody to employ her or promote her or uh, or so on. And so we've we've got to a position where the sort of far left have have destroyed the rights of ordinary workers to express their views, ordinary workers of of whatever social class. And it's only really people who are independently wealthy massively wealthy mm. um who who have completely unfettered freedom of speech within the law which of course in scotland is 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 getting even tighter than the rest of the uk 
There is another way around this, which wouldn't have been around in quite the same way, I think, back in the third century. I love the fact everything goes back to the third century. Sorry, fourth, apologies, I apologies to our, our one remaining <laughs> listener. Uh, <laughs> thank you for bearing with us. <laughs> At this juncture, if you've made it to <laughs> this point. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Which is that you can now start your own business. You can become more entrepreneurial. Now, there are still restraints around that, suppliers in particular. Who, yeah. who, who, um, yeah, if you're supplying, uh, if you go into the food business and you decide you want to supply a major supermarket nowadays, a Tesco, a Waitrose, in this instance, it could be your climate credentials, uh, or as well as your EDI credentials will be looked at. However, there is perhaps at least one or two extra degrees of freedom if you start your own business and say, right, I'm going to run this in, in a non-woke way. And you don't even have to bang a drum about it. You don't have yeah. to go out and say, hey, I'm not being woke. I'm putting up a flag, unwoke. You just have to start your business, build your business, hire people, and remain silent on a lot of these issues. At some point, you're going to have a denouement, probably with one or two members of staff, uh, or one or two suppliers. But you can be smart about it, maybe. So perhaps us being in Britain, a nation of shopkeepers, maybe we we need to continue down that track, a nation of entrepreneurs who can who can sort of swerve around big the big corporates, because that's where the that's where the rot's really set in, in the public sector and the big corporates in the private sector. Well, if the nation of shopkeepers can beat Napoleon, I'm sure we can beat the woke movement. Which it takes courage. It does take courage. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no way to segue on to our next item, so I'm just going to introduce it, Tom. Which is Go for uh, it. <laughs> this uh, this investigation into the deletion of uh, uh, anti-indoctrination clauses for uh, new schools. So. Uh, as listeners will likely know, schools have an obligation uh, not to uh, uh, not to present politically contentious materials in a biased way. They're not allowed to indoctrinate their pupils. And yet uh, it has emerged that the civil service had deleted reference to this duty um, in the Department of Education in contracts between uh, between some academies. And we don't like the sound of that, Tom, do we? For all the reasons we've uh, we've adumbrated already in this episode. Well, absolutely. I mean, to, to delete the anti-indoctrination clause, okay, it's a clause, it's wording in a contract, it's a funding agreement. Surely that doesn't matter. Surely it doesn't, you know, people people never read these things. Surely that's like terms and conditions when you're signing up to a new Apple contract. You've got 20 pages and you don't, don't read it. Well, actually, it does matter because this it's really... It's a school. It matters so much, doesn't it? It's wild. Um, it's... It, and it's why you're getting money from the government. You're getting yeah. money from the government in order to um, teach children. And the anti-indoctrination clause really does matter. And I think what the example that I read was that um, our own chief legal counsel, Bryn, has seen a formal opinion from a case he's specializing in education law, which mistakenly stated that academy schools are not bound by the impartiality provisions of the 2014 regulations. And so it does, it, not only does it matter, but it's actually had real practical implications for what people feel uh, they're allowed to do within schools and what they're not allowed to do within schools. So yet again, we're, we're, we're doing the detective work as to how we've got here. And one key strand is that um, there's a genuine understanding that there is no need um, to be politically neutral when teaching. 
um, which to me is bizarre. <laughs> the, uh, the the good news at the end of this is that the the government has made it clear that schools are, and I quote, legally required to be politically impartial in their teaching, end quote, and they've blamed an administrative error for this. But really, this is a message that could not be more important for the Department for Education to be sending out to schools. So it's much to be regretted um, that this oversight, this error, or whatever has caused this, has, has happened. Is this a big problem, though, Ben? I mean, I'm going to go back. I mean, obviously, that's a bit of a bit of a um, uh, devil's advocate question. But is the problem something like the wording not getting in, or the clause not getting in, um, and saying you need to be politically neutral? Is that the problem? And if it had been in there, then it would have been fine. Or is the problem, going back to something we also talked about, is the problem that the schools and the external providers just don't accept that this is political? And so whether the clause is in there or whether the clause is not in there makes absolutely zero difference because those in power say, well, it's not a political thing anyway, so we're carrying on as we were. Well, this is the problem of relying on law to shape culture. Um, and the the philosophical question of whether law is downstream of culture or vice versa. Um, and I think, for my part, you do need, in cases like with university regulation, you do need law sometimes to declare and uphold what our values are. And I regret that that is the case, to be honest. But I, I think with the case of, of university regulation, uh, likewise with schools. It, it's no longer the case that you can just rely on school leaders or university leaders to get that um, they should be politically impartial. They don't take that for granted anymore. So we do need law to say that, unfortunately. Mm. Um, yeah, We're fighting on the wrong territory again. David Starkey, again, I think, every time I go back <laughs> to what he says, I, I, I have my eyes opened, I think that he's right, that we are fighting on the wrong territory. You've said it as well. We've created a new class of people with the Equality Act. We, why did we need the Equality Act? Why did we need to roll in this way of looking at freedoms and underlying truths? Uh, because it's put us in this mess. We now have to hang our our hat on it to win our battles, as we know from, from our case well, work. We have to use it. To use a military metaphor, um, although I would not want to start from where we are as a society now, um, you, you can achieve victory through defense in depth by surrendering large amounts of territory to buy time and then fighting back. So at the risk of overextending this metaphor, I think that's probably the position that small L liberals and the free speech movement and its its coalition are in at the moment where we are in a, a, a defense in depth scenario um, from which it is possible to win. It just yep. feels a bit gloomy. Sometimes. It feels a bit gloomy. It feels, but we're still winning seventy-three percent of our cases, Ben. Let's let's oh, remember the are. positive side of this as well. <laughs> yeah, and and that's you know again seventy-three percent, and that's an illegal framework that that we uh, that we didn't choose or or build, and we're still able to achieve those successes for people. So uh, it is possible to win. Yeah, I, I, that's something I took away. You're going back to your point about the law. Something I took away from the uh, meeting last week. We had some really eminent lawyers 
really agonizing over the nuance of this and the nuance of that and 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 wargaming out i thought the, the 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 comment that was made about well you can't have a rule book for glorifying terrorism because suppose and he wargamed it out he said suppose you say you can't say this well they'll find a way around that suppose you do this and we they'll find a way around that and i think the legal profession really does us a service when it when it when it does that and it and, and it does that from an as we've spoken about before a sort of we're an adversarial approach as well um so some of our best minds are are working it through but yeah it is slightly worrying if we completely have to rely on our on our lawyers but um uh it it, it it's good there's good stuff that's being battled out in that forum i suppose is my point yeah definitely well can i leave listeners with a final thought uh, that i texted you the other day tom yesterday in fact this is my realization that dei mm. diversity and quality and inclusion is also the acronym of Divide et Impera, Divide and Rule, which I thought was quite fitting. Very much so. Very mm. much so. Seems to be a, the modus operandi. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think that's all from me, Tom. Unless you want to add anything, I shall say goodbye for my part. No, nothing at all. Just to uh, to, to thank our listeners again, or anyone who's uh, come along to all sorts of the events we've we've enjoyed over the over the recent over the recent times, and uh, uh, remind people that our events are listed on the website, and that there is our Christmas special in particular is coming up, which will be a lot of fun just before Christmas. So do sign up, do uh, do check out what what events are upcoming, and we will speak to you next week. Thank you very much, and and goodbye. Goodbye.